Hi everyone, thank you for joining us online. When someone says, I don't believe in God, think about responding, which God is it that you don't believe in? Because the God described by so many people doesn't look much like the God I see in Jesus Christ. So close your eyes, picture God. Is he smiling? I hope by the end of the series, you will be. Thank you for joining us as we discuss our good and beautiful God. The year was 1715 in Paris, France. And as the king had commanded in his will, every light in the cathedral had been turned off except for one solitary candle that sat on top of the king's solid gold jewel-studded coffin. He was Louis XIV. Some called him the Sun King. He called himself the Great. When Bishop Massillon rose to give his funeral oration, he surprised the crowd. He slowly reached down and with his finger, snuffed the candle out. And then with a steady voice, he began the funeral oration with these four words, only God is great. You're listening to Life on the West Side. Here's Nathan Guy. I am sorry that there's no table. I wanted to do something similar, but Katie would not let me bring the refrigerator. (laughs) In my years of preaching, I have met many people who had developed a deep psychological need to feel chastised or ridiculed in order to feel like they've done something religious. Uh, A sweet lady in Mississippi once told me, I don't feel like I've been to church unless my toes hurt from the preacher stepping all over them. Do you know this phenomenon, this idea that if I go to church, I want to be reminded of how bad I am. Now, I do think there is something valuable in recognizing how bad sin is, how unworthy you and I are, and how much for any good thing we need God. A focus on our sinfulness shines a light on God's holiness, and that is a good thing. But in terms of psychology, surely there's something unhealthy about a deep need to be mentally whipped every Sunday. It can speak to an imbalance in the way we think about God. Remember, it was Jonathan Edwards who preached that sermon, famous sermon, that said, God abhors you. That's King James for hates you. And is holding you over your, the fires of hell with by your ankles, waiting for you to mess up so he can let go and be justified in doing so. It's the idea that God is mad all the time. Anger is an essential part of his nature. And so as some people will say, I just assume God's always angry with me. And then when I do something really bad, well, that's when I get scared to death to wonder what in the world is he going to do to me? 
But that narrative simply won't do because John says that God so loved the God forsaken world that he gave his own precious son to a people deserving of annihilation. And to what end? So that anyone, any one of those wayward sinful souls who will put their trust in Jesus won't suffer the brunt end of God's anger, but will sit at his table in loving fellowship with goodness and mercy, pursuing them all the days of their life. I've seen the fruit. I've seen the fruit that comes with corrective lenses on this. It was an elder's wife who wrote me a very sweet letter four years after I had been at a a church. And she said, you taught me to read the Bible with love. You helped me to see that God is for me and not against me. And I actually like God rather than thinking he hates me all the time. I've heard people trapped in their guilt 30, 40, 50 years after committing a sin and asking forgiveness every single day. Set free by a better story about a God who has forgiven you. And the tears flow down their face when they speak of the sweetness of grace that they feel, actually feel, for the very first time. And that's why we're doing this series. A healthy view of God, the God who is crazy about you, the God who is for you, the God who is with you, will transform your life and will change the world. But you know that there are ditches on both sides of the truth. A woman approached James Smith after one of his sermons and said, Your sermon was so very freeing. Made him feel very good. She continued. You see, I've been living with my boyfriend for the past six months, and I was raised in a church that said that that was a sin. And I felt very guilty about that. But this morning, you said that God loves us without condition, and that Jesus has forgiven all of our sins, and then I realized my guilt was unnecessary. Jesus paid it all. So I just want to thank you for such a liberating message. And she walked away with a bounce in her step like someone who had just been told by their doctor that they're cancer-free. And he says, my heart sank. I remember a preacher once relating a story of um, someone who came into his office and said, I, uh, I, I hear that you do weddings and that kind of thing. Uh, maybe uh, you can also help me with my divorce. You see, I just, I'm just, I'm just tired of my husband, and I know that God wants me to be happy. And the preacher looked her in the eyes and said, "What in the world would make you think that?" She just kind of looked at him for a second, wondering what, what in the world does he mean by that? And the preacher said, of course, ultimate happiness is found in Christ and in doing his will. But that's not what you're talking about. You're talking about how you feel about your circumstances. And if by that definition, God could care much less about what you're calling happiness and much more about your holiness. I think that what seems all the rage these days is to identify our deepest desires or our basest instincts and then to define ourselves by that, to make it our goal to feed the beast, 
to seek the pleasure of whatever our heart desires. After all, we tell ourselves, it would be a sin not to. If turning God into a sadist who enjoys hurting his children is one extreme unhealthy view, the other extreme is to turn God into a teddy bear or a Santa Claus that only exists to dole out candy and presents and to give you limitless freedom to become whatever you wish to become, no matter how bad that is for you or for the world around you or for the world that he promises to protect and save. Richard Niebuhr was a longtime professor of ethics, and he had a great quote to describe the way our world thinks. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through administration of a Christ without a cross. The same Christian psychologist that will tell us that viewing God primarily as the great executioner is going to do an unhealthy number on us will also tell you that a life of unlimited permissiveness is more enslaving than anything else. What would we think of a parent who plies their child with chocolates until their child at a very young age is already suffering from diabetes and obesity? And when asked why, they say, well, my kid wanted it and I just wanted to be a good parent. Setting rules and boundaries and enforcing those boundaries is the sign of a good parent. And the punishment that comes from crossing those boundaries is a sign of protection. And the willingness to defend the innocent against the oppressor and to ensure that justice is served is the hallmark of a good and just society. So if God believes in goodness and kindness and peace, it means he must hate evil and mean-spiritedness and oppression and animosity. A God who could care less about my sin, care less about evil, have nothing to say about corruption, is a God who's useless, who is useless against the darkness, who can't protect and can never be trusted to mold us into the people that are supposed to be made after his image. How can we trust that God will make righteous judgments if he could care less about unrighteousness? If there's a God who truly loves us, he must not only be generous and kind, he must also be a consuming fire. And so today, we're going to talk about God's holiness. One minister said that any preacher who dares to preach on the holiness of God feels like David wearing armor too big for him. So true. The first time we find the word holy is in Genesis 2 and verse 3, and it's God who declares the Sabbath holy, for on that day he rests. The second time we find the word holy is in Exodus, in which Moses stands in front of a bush that's burning but not burning up. And the voice says, take off your shoes, Moses. For the place where you stand, meaning the place in front of God, is holy. It's not a coincidence that the Spirit of God is called the Holy Spirit. And that Spirit's comparable to a rushing wind, or an electric lightning, or living water, or powerful wine. For the average American, the most iconic image of the Holy Spirit 
doesn't come from scripture. It comes from Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. You remember the scene. That's one of those, once you see, you can't unsee. The foolish bad guys dare to toy with the holy Ark of the Covenant. The Ark that once sat in the temple, Dagon. You know that story in the Old Testament. The Ark of the Covenant sits in this temple of Dagon. And the next morning, the big false idol Dagon is fallen down face first in front of the Ark. So they put him back up. They go away. The next day, the trunk is still there, but the head and the hands have broken. The ark that rocked on the back of the cart. So Uzzah tries to stop it from rocking and is struck dead immediately. And in this movie, the wrong people acting the wrong way will try to rouse the spirit. They take the cover off the ark and you know how it ends. The spirit of power, wind, lightning, and thunder, the God of power appears and melts their faces off. Spoiler alert, I don't know if you've seen the movie. It's an image you don't forget. And you better believe it, it changes the tone of there's an all-seeing eye watching you. But you know, you know that movies hardly ever get it right. And the view of God's holiness as this wild, chaotic, unwieldy threat that shoots out of an uncontrollable vent to kill and maim anyone standing in its wake is really not a true and accurate vision. There's context to all of those stories. It's true that God's holiness makes him radically pure and distinct and that he hates sin and evil. And I told you several weeks ago that God's severity is actually good news because we wouldn't want a God who looks at rape and torture and child abuse and says, no big deal. We want a God who hates evil. We want a God who looks at the Holocaust and says, this is a terrible wrong and it won't go unpunished. Children need security. And as children of God, we know that we're safe and secure in Christ because our father is a defender against all evils. But we can so easily develop a lopsided perspective if we think this, that any single infraction, however small, is less than perfection and therefore anti-God, therefore deserving of God's wrath. So God melts our faces off because we're less than perfect. And he's perfectly just in doing so. Perish the thought. Here's the big difference between us and God. When we use the words wrath, when we use the word wrath, we're talking about pure rage. You know it. You've seen it in yourself or your spouse. The look on the face, the redness, the blood pressure going up. Oh, here we go. It's lost it. It's this irrational, uncontrollable anger that causes us to lash out. And who knows what's going to happen next? We can be overly kind one day, overlooking something that ought to be punished. And then we can be overly enraged the next day so much that we lash out with an extreme reaction after apologize later. That's not God. Our God is pure love and perfect reason at all times. And love is to will the good of someone else. And that means that God is always 
doing and wanting what is best for you at all times. Love is who God is. Wrath is something God does in dealing with the severity of sin. And it's always in the context of his limitless love. So any talk about his severity, his holiness, his punishment is always the right and perfect and reasonable and proportional response that's needed to make you and this world into what God intended for us to be. I want to say this again. God is not a fly off the handle God who's out to burn your face off. He is pure love, which means he wants what's best for you and will give what is right and needed in response to the evil around you. His wrath burns against sin, but not the sinner. He deals harshly with evil, death, and sin, but he seeks to deal gently with the people made in his image who are wrapped up in it. As Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 9, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. You've heard this line before. There are many people who want Jesus to be their Savior, but they don't want him to be their Lord. And here's the ultimate irony. Pardon, which is what you think of as salvation, pardon is useless without deliverance. Imagine if uh, the person in prison gets the telegram from the governor. Good news. You have been pardoned. The fact that you're a prisoner is no on your record. It will never show up when you look for a job in the future. It's as if you were never put in the prison in the first place. You have been pardoned. That's great, says the prisoner. I'll go get my things. I don't think you understand. You're still staying in here. But you've been pardoned. What's the point of pardon if it doesn't lead to deliverance? Yes, Jesus is our Savior. He pardons us. But he also translates us into a kingdom in which he, through his spirit, makes us into holy people as we get free from the trap of sin and evil that tries to hold us down. God came to destroy the works of Satan, to hold captivity captive, and to finally destroy the last enemy, death. And only a God who is holy can do it. So let's define the word holy, shall we? In Revelation 15, in verse 4, Revelation says, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. That word alone gets us started. For starters, it's got to mean set apart and distinct from anything else. There is creator, and there is creation. Everything is on this side, except for God. To help us understand that, God over and over again in his first covenant demanded that his people set things apart. You see it everywhere. Not just people, stuff. In Genesis, Abraham and Jacob set apart 
some lambs from the others. In Genesis 49, Joseph is set apart from his brothers. When God blesses and protects land in Exodus chapter 8, he sets it apart like Goshen. In Exodus 13, God's people set apart the firstborn for a special occasion. They even set apart furniture and pots and pans that are supposed to be used for the service of God and nothing else. When I was growing up, we had a plate that said, you are special. And that plate was at our table at dinner, and it would get passed around depending on who was being celebrated for dinner that night. It was only supposed to be used at dinner if you were the one who was going to be declared special that evening. You didn't use it at lunch to put it in the microwave. Nope, that was set apart. That is for dinner when we claim that one of your brothers is special. Always one of my brothers. <laughs> All of this, when in Leviticus 9, he says, don't wear shirts made of two different kinds of cloth. Don't sew in a field with two different kinds of grain. It was all to create habits where everywhere you look, you remember there's ordinary and there's extraordinary. There's normal and there's special. Because ultimately, all of these things point to one reality. Israel was supposed to be set apart to the Lord from all idols. And God was supposed to be set apart from all other gods. You are to have no other gods besides me. I alone am God. Besides me, there is no other. To say God is holy is to say he is set apart. He's like no other. The year was 1715 in Paris, France. And as the king had commanded in his will, every light in the cathedral had been turned off except for one solitary candle that sat on top of the king's solid gold jewel-studded coffin. He was Louis XIV. Some called him the Sun King. He called himself the Great. And at this moment, all the mourners would see his greatness with the one light over his candle. The bishop was a man named Jean-Baptiste Massillon. And I'll tell you, there was some hints that something different was going to happen in his lifetime. Because Bishop Massillon wasn't like any other preacher. The king had actually sent a message to the bishop during his lifetime, and it said, You are not like any other preacher I've heard. For when I hear others, when I hear others, um, I'm highly pleased with them. But whenever I hear you, I go away displeased with myself. For I see my own character. Foreboding words. When Bishop Massillon rose to give his funeral oration, he surprised the crowd. He slowly reached down and with his finger snuffed the candle out. And then with a steady voice, he began the funeral oration with these four words. Only God is great. How great is he? He's so great, Isaiah says, God inhabits eternity. The heavens cannot contain him. 
God's not just the biggest thing at the end of a cosmic chain. We know that. He's more than just the biggest thing out there. He's, he's being itself, as, as Augustine calls him. But it's hard for us to get our, our head around that. I need a mental image. So Isaiah chapter 6 says, try this on for size. I see the Lord high and lifted up, and he's so big that he's sitting on his throne, and just the tail end of his robe, the train of his robe, fills the temple. I mean, look around at the sides here. Just imagine that the bottom of his robe fills the auditorium. Starting to get an image of what we're talking about. Isaiah continues by saying, there are winged creatures flying all around, singing to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. He fills all time. He fills all space. He's the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, or as Paul puts it, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Have you noticed in scripture how holy and glory are tied together? God tells Moses to make holy garments for Aaron, for beauty and for glory. In Isaiah, in the first Chronicles, in the Psalms, we're told, glorify God's holy name. When the dying Stephen is full of the Holy Spirit, he looks up to heaven and he sees the glory of God. And one day Jesus will return in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Remember Revelation. Who will glorify your name? For you alone are holy. We know this. Everyone agrees that God alone is worthy of glory. Nothing in creation shares space with God. Nobody could doubt it. But we do. We do doubt it. Romans chapter 1 says the basic sin of humanity is glory theft. We won't give him all of the glory. We like our crowns and we glory in ourselves. That's Romans 3. Every single one of us is guilty of glory theft. Our forefathers created gods out of rocks and stone and wood. We're not much different. We see God in the mirror. Stand with me in front of that mirror and let the words of John Henry Newman spoken 200 years ago cut us open and expose our hearts. Here's his quote. We don't make it our aim to please God. We make it our aim to please ourselves without displeasing God. Can I say that again? We don't make it our aim to please God. We make it our aim to please ourselves without displeasing God. What difference does that make? All the difference in the world. Because what you aim for is what you worship. And it's so easy. We want God to smile and look at us 100% of the time, but deep down, we want him to be pleased with our plans, approve of our wishes, and back our will. We want him to bless our desires rather than desiring what he blesses. And that's glory theft. Peter does it. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus walks on the water. He acts like God. He looks like God. He says things that only God says in the Old Testament. It's clearly a story about God. 
And the Bible says so. The title, the title in Mark 6, in your Bibles, Jesus walks on the water. But Matthew tells a different story. As Jesus begins to walk on the water, Peter says, look what I can do. And he jumps out of the boat. And then after a little while, he starts to sink. And then he has to get saved. He turns a story about God into a story about himself. And it works. In Matthew's gospel, in most of our Bibles, the title is Peter Walks on the Water. Please me. I hope that doesn't displease you. James and John do it. Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to suffer and die. But one day he's going to return in glory with his father and the holy angels. Cue James and John. Hey, listen, when you come in your glory, will you put me and my brother on your right and left hand? We got the you are special plates all ready to go. Please me. I hope that doesn't displease you. The bumper stickers have it wrong. God's not my co-pilot. He isn't a Santa Claus who only exists to give you whatever you want. Long before he's a friend, he's a friend next to you. He's the exalted Lord over all creation. Seated on a throne far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Glory to God alone is a charge against being all too flippant in the presence of Almighty God. Here's an image you can take to the bank. In Revelation, when anyone or anything in heaven or earth or under the earth catches one glimpse of the glory of God, every face hits the ground and every crown comes off. Our God inhabits eternity. His train fills the auditorium. God's holiness speaks to his incomparable, transcendent perfection. He has no rivals. He has no equals. And demands total and complete surrender. And in that light, I encourage every one of us to snuff our candle out. I am the Lord, Isaiah says. That's my name. My glory I give to no other. But God isn't finished with this story. And in my last five minutes, I'm not done yet either. I told you that one part of the definition of God's holiness is that he's separate, distinct, like no other. But if that's all there was to God's holiness, how could he ever be our savior? Into the world he came. Into the sin-drenched, unholy, God-forsaken world he came. And to you and I, so far from perfect, so much less than we ought to be, He promises to fill with his spirit. And he says, I want to live with you. I want to smile with and cry with you. I'm taking up residence within you. Somehow, we've got to see high and holy God as the one who stands above it all, but who can also get his hands dirty and sit at table with tax collectors and preachers. And that's where Isaiah dazzles us again. Isaiah 57 and verse 15. Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, but also, but also, I dwell with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the hearts of the contrite. 
He doesn't cease to be holy when he walks by Zacchaeus and says, I'm going to your house today. He doesn't cease to be holy when he touches a leper. He doesn't cease to be holy when he invites you and me to his table or when he says, I want to fill you with my spirit. The last definition of holy is that God is justified in whatever place he stands to make that place holy too. His holiness means he can make that which is otherwise unholy, holy. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes to what Devin Swindle calls the hot mess church of Christ. Corinth had, it, had everything bad. You name it, they had it wrong. You name an issue, they were dealing with it. And to those people, Paul says to the holy church at Corinth. If mom and dad see you first as their child, it's an offense against mom and dad for me to think of you any other way. My God looks at you and looks at me and says, my spirit lives in you. My spirit's at work in you. Don't you call anything made in my image in which I'm at work unholy. And that changes the game. When I think about the same power that can melt faces off, when I think of fire that can destroy, fire can also refine. And God's holiness, God's holiness can singe and burn if we choose to ignore it. But it can also get rid of all that is wrong with us and purify us so that we can be more and more like Him. In purer lives, thy service find, and in deeper reverence praise. May God's holiness be the sign and seal of our calling and how God sees us. Thanks for joining. No one has ever loved you like Jesus Christ. I hope you feel that love in every sermon that's preached on this podcast. You can find more sermons, transcripts, study guides at nathanguy.com. Please stay tuned for another lesson and rest in the love of Christ.